Civics 101 is supported in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I think now is as good a time as any to admit a bit of a minor confession. I sometimes have so much trouble reading primary source documents. I've got Article 9 in the Articles of Confederation in front of me. I think I've read it 10 times. I don't know what it means. These documents were written a long time ago. They can be hard to understand. Primary sources are difficult to bring to life. This is Paul Bogish. He's a teacher at Dag Hammarskjöld Middle School. A lot of times in a classroom, it's very easy to give your standard quiz where the kids will read through the documents. They'll name the different parts and spit it back on a test. But I wanted my kids to ingest the documents a little bit differently. So how on earth do you convey to someone the challenges of governing under the Articles of Confederation without putting them in a chair and making them read it a hundred times? So Hannah... Imagine you're sitting in a class, you're about to do a blah, blah, boring day, and your teacher comes in with this giant sack of blocks and just dumps them on the table. Heads up, no class today. We're going to play a game. Oh, you love games. I do. So the teacher cues up some war music, and they play Articles of Confederation. The class is divided into teams, which are states, and more students are put in the bigger states. So the group of eight represented Virginia, the group of six represented Pennsylvania, the group of four represented New York, the group of two represented Connecticut, and finally the one lonely kid by themselves represented Delaware. Oh, poor Delaware. But each state got a different amount of blocks and was told to make a big strong fort that is still standing at the end of class. And the bigger your state was, the more blocks you got. So Virginia got a ton of blocks and Delaware got three. Delaware's fort is done in like five seconds. But every state could do whatever they wanted to help each other out. They could trade blocks, they could sell blocks, they could help build each other's forts, and they could change any rules of the game at all as long as they followed two guidelines. Rule number one, any state can propose a new rule as long as four out of the five groups agree to it. And rule number two, each state would only get one vote regardless of their size. So they can do anything. Anything. But they need to convince almost all of the other states to agree. Yeah, and Delaware, right off the bat, proposes a rule that all states should share their blocks equally so everyone gets the same amount. And you can probably guess how that went over. So Delaware tries another tack. Delaware also tried to buy blocks from other states, but none of the other states wanted to sell them. They immediately shot Delaware down, and so Delaware was stuck with just their three measly little blocks. But at that moment, me, who was playing England, stepped in and offered to sell Delaware some of the blocks that we had on hand. The other states thought this was immensely unfair, and so they tried to stop it. But that didn't work because Connecticut also wanted more blocks and bought them from England. Did they pass any rules at all? I spoke with several teachers who played Paul's game, and they all said no matter how many times they've played it, not one rule got passed. And at the end of class, the teacher looks at all the forts in the different states and says, what if I told you that Delaware's fort is solely responsible for protecting the entire class. In every single class that I did this activity, the kids that were in the group from Virginia all came to the same conclusion. And that was if they weren't so greedy and selfish and if they cared more about the other states during the process, that they would still have power when it was all over. 
I'm not 100% certain how this game is related to the Articles of Confederation. I think you will be by the end of this episode. All right. But what did those students learn that day? That we basically need government to save us from ourselves. (laughs) Not quite in the lauded canon of the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence, this document is usually remembered for one thing. It's weaknesses. I'm Nick Capodice. And I'm Hannah McCarthy. And this is Civics 101, our founding document series. Today we're talking about America's first rule book, the Articles of Confederation. To start, Harvard professor Daniel Allen told me that the Articles of Confederation are even mentioned within the Declaration of Independence. How crazy is that? Um, If you go back to that second sentence where they say that it's the job of the people to lay the foundation on principle and to organize the powers of government, that those two phrases are their to-do list. And that's exactly the committees they set up in June of 1776. They needed a committee to articulate the foundation of principle. That was the committee drafting the Declaration of Independence. And then they needed a committee to organize the powers of government. And that was the committee drafting the Articles of Confederation. This was a committee of 13, led by anti-independence congressman John Dickinson of Delaware. So... They were written even before we declared independence from Britain. No, because there were 16 months of revisions. And then the Continental Congress adopted them in 1777, but they weren't fully ratified by the states until 1781. The American Revolution didn't end until 1783. Okay, so Articles of Confederation, what do they say? The first article is just, quote, The style of this confederacy shall be the United States of America. Confederacy? Yeah. Like the South in the Civil War? Yeah. Confederacy is just a style of government with individual sovereign states, no big central power running everything. The most famous one today is the European Union. But why did we want it to be like that? Here's Linda Monk. She's a constitutional scholar and the author of The Bill of Rights, A User's Guide. I think it's it's a new government trying to decide, okay, we didn't like the way the old king did it or the old government did it. How are we going to do it now? I mean, when you think about it, that the, that the colony, the former colonies were able to unite together to fend off the world's strongest military uh, was astonishing. But again, as Washington recognized, a revolution by itself is um, commonplace. A revolution is an idea, and that's a lot easier than a rule book. We wanted to make sure we got everything right. And when you think about the mindset of the people who wrote this, they were coming from a monarchy, and they wanted this new system of government to be as opposite as possible to what rule under England was like. I've even heard teachers refer to this using a Goldilocks metaphor that monarchy was too hot and the Articles of Confederation were too cold. And the Constitution is going to be just right? Exactly. Yeah. I asked Joel Collins, law professor at South Carolina Honors College, about the Goldilocks metaphor. One's too hot, one's too cold, and the Constitution is just right. Well, uh, that's a simplification. I don't agree with you. <laughs> okay. Let, let's talk about the Articles. So, so here we are. We've, uh, we've declared our independence. We've fought for our independence. We've won the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown. By the way, I call it the War of Independence, not the Revolutionary War. We weren't trying to overthrow King George. We just want our freedom. But the one thing that these newly uh, formed states had in common was 
a desire to avoid a strong central government. They did not want that. The articles are referred to, in the language of the articles, a firm league of friendship. And the articles were designed to be really inefficient. So how did this purposefully inefficient government work? They have one branch of government, and that's the legislative branch. And they call that the Confederation Congress. That's Lindsay Stevens, government teacher from Katy, Texas. It's unicameral, so there's only one group, and one state gets one vote. So that's the structure of it. And then they specifically list what powers the national government can have. They have the power to coin money, the power to make treaties with foreign nations, and they also do have the power to request money from the states. Request money, that word, request, it's really important. The federal government isn't taxing states, they're just asking the states for money. And what if the states say no? You just stand on your porch and shake your fist at them. And then if you're another state, you said, well, look, Delaware didn't do it. I'm not going to do it either. After the American Revolution ends, the states no longer have a common purpose. That was what was holding this league of friendship together, that they all had a common interest. And that was winning the American Revolution and sticking it to the man, sticking it to the British government. Once that common interest is gone, the quarrels, the fighting begins. It's like 13 arguing brothers and sisters that all want to be equal. That's Linda Monk again. No, you take out the garbage. No, I don't want to take out the garbage. You take out the garbage. And it particularly came down to this issue of taxation, of how are you going to support a government if the states individually aren't willing to to pay taxes to cover the the costs. And like I say, the can you imagine today if we had an army of unpaid soldiers? Would we expect that government to long continue? No. So the, the biggest issue was that Congress, as it would say the United States and Congress assembled, that was actually the name of the government. It had some powers, but fundamental is the power to tax. And until you had some agreement amongst the states that was going to allow that, it was going to be very difficult. The articles could be amended, right? Yes. So why didn't we just add an amendment saying that the government could tax the states? Well, the amendment process itself was a huge issue. Uh, It took 13 out of 13 to change the articles. Rhode Island, which they call Rogue Island, would never go along with anything. They were always the no vote. And uh, as a result of that, they couldn't get that 13 out of 13 votes necessary. By the way, each state had one vote. That's the way it worked back then. That's the way it worked at the, Continental, at the uh, Constitutional Convention. Each state had one vote. It took nine out of 13 to enact anything. They never had the power to uh, create and fund an army or a navy. Uh, they never had uh, any uh, right to control interstate commerce, and these states were uh, affecting uh, disadvantages on each other by enacting tariffs and and levies of duties and all that. And so the trade was, was just a mess. They were menacing foreign po- uh, powers, looking at these rich colonies uh, sitting there, you know, unorganized and ununited. Un- it, it had no uh, chief executive. No president at all. Well, there was a president of Congress, but that's like for Trivial Pursuit. Um, not a president with powers like you and I know it. There was also no judicial branch, no national courts, and no official meeting place, no, like, building. Go back and read about all the various places the um, 
Articles of Confederate, the Confederation Congress met. They met in New York, Philadelphia, Lancaster, Pennsylvania one time. Um, and in one of the books that I assigned to my students, David O. Stewart says, a peripatetic government can never be expected to be very strong and powerful. <laughs> this doesn't sound good. There were so many problems. There was no common currency. Think about that. You couldn't go into some other state and and use your money because it was no good. There, there were exchange rates, but they wildly fluctuated, and they were not consistent. For one thing, without liquid currency available, people who owed money and who couldn't pay their debts with bartered crops or something like that uh, were in a heck, a, a heck of a bind. Anna, you've got to look up photos of this early American currency. It may have been an economic nightmare, but it was certainly a beautiful one. you got Connecticut shillings, Rhode Island dollars, and Virginia pounds. Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. Sterling. I'm seeing the flaws of the Articles of Confederation, but were there any strengths to it? Yeah, I asked Lindsay that exact question. Under the Articles of Confederation, the Continental Congress was able to pass one very successful law, and that's the Northwest Ordinance. The Northwest Ordinance decided what we were going to do with the land that we had acquired through the Treaty of Paris at the conclusion of the American Revolution. This land that we got from Britain at the end of the war was called the Northwest Territory, and it includes most of modern-day Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And the question that the delegates had to answer is, what are we going to do with this land? Are we going to make it a colony? Are we going to make it a territory? Can it be admitted as a state? And um, they kind of saw the writing on the wall that if they left it as a colony, the territory could eventually have another revolution. So this is another example of let's not do things the way that England did. We don't want another little colony to break off and have a revolution, right? Right, right. So they say these territories can become states, part of the United States, but there are some requirements. They have to have self-government. They have to have freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of religion. They're not allowed to have slavery. Okay, stop. This ordinance says slavery is not legal in new states? Yep. We're three documents in, and we have finally arrived at our first national limitation on the expansion of slavery. But states that practice it already are allowed to continue to practice it. And therefore become even more rich and powerful. Yes. So this can be viewed as a 
pro-slavery and anti-slavery ordinance. But that aside, if a new territory abides by these rules, it can apply to become a state. They have to have a constitution, and they had to be approved by the Congress. But once they went through that process, they were able to have equal rights and equal representation in the government as the original 13 states. And that was really a revolutionary idea of us adding more states to our union. That really didn't happen in the past. So there's a little good, but it seems like a lot of problems in this weak system of government. How does it all come crashing down in the end? Crashes like this. You got this government that can't tax, can't collect money, and therefore can't pay soldiers. And as Linda Monk puts it, Unpaid soldiers after a war is over are not a good idea. And it leads to something called Shays' Rebellion. We can think of that term harshly today, call it rebellion instead of, say, revolution. But really, Daniel Shays had been a captain. He was a Revolutionary War veteran. These were farmers from western Massachusetts who had gone off to defend their country while the bankers from Boston were foreclosing on uh, their debts and taking away their homes. That didn't sound fair to the people of Western Massachusetts and Shays and other unpaid veterans. So he and these uh, farmers decided to march on the armory in Springfield, Massachusetts, and seize the guns and weaponry and ammunition. And they were going to then march down to where the Confederation Congress was meeting, and they were going to absolutely uh, fire, fire them up. They were, going to, they were going to take over the government. So Massachusetts says, we need help. And the federal government requests that the states chip in with money and soldiers and cannon. But all those states say they've got their own problems. So what happens? So what happens is wealthy private citizens who are losing money due to this uprising pool their resources together and they hire a private military to quell Shays and the 4,000 plus rebels. But look at the implication of this. You've got private citizens hiring private citizens to go to war with private citizens. Is that what you want? Is that what America is? Is that what this new nation is going to be like? And if it happens in Massachusetts, who's to say it's not going to happen in your state? Shay's Rebellion is a cautionary tale. So we're at the beginning of the end. As is so often the case, it comes down to money. All this time, the states have been doing whatever they could with their own constitutions, and every state had their own constitution, by the way, just to make things work when it came to interstate commerce, dealing with those Rhode Island shillings and those Connecticut dollars. So what they had to do was create treaties just to trade with each other, like foreign nations. And there's a call for a political convention at Mann's Tavern in Annapolis, Maryland, to talk about how we should handle trade between the states. James Madison was there. Only five states sent representatives. The host state, Maryland, sent nobody. They have been given directives from their states to discuss interstate commerce and to create trade agreements. But on New Jersey's directive from their state, it says, and anything else pertinent to the success of our country. Anything else pertinent to the success of our country? Anything else? New Jersey's like... Anything any of us you want to chat about while we're all here? Some sort of big elephant in the room? Maybe we could talk about fixing this disaster of a government system? 
but they can't do much with just five states. So they decide to meet up again next year, but not in this bar in Maryland. Let's do it proper. Let's do it in Philadelphia. I think I know where this is going. Yeah. The point of this episode is not to say the Articles of Confederation were an abject failure and oh, how foolish were we. They taught us a great deal about ourselves. So I want to end with a final thought from Lindsay Stevens. Some people call the Articles of Confederation a learning to crawl before you walk document, taking the first steps of creating a national government. Some people consider it to be a total mistake. I think those people are looking at it with with the insight of what we know today. If you think about it, though, the Articles is really a good first step towards a national government. What we learn from the Articles is that absence of power doesn't create a limited government. It actually creates an ineffective government. You know, government has a purpose, and that is to protect the unalienable rights of its citizens. And in order for that to happen, we do have to give the government some power. Um, We just have to be careful about how we do that. And so we developed a system of checks and balances, separation of powers, in order to make sure that that system stays in place and that the government's power is limited. So, did we learn from our mistakes? Can we keep this republic, Hannah? Find out next time on Civics 101. Today's episode was produced by me, Nick Capodice, with Hannah McCarthy. Our staff includes Jackie Helbert, Daniela Vidal-Ali, and Ben Henry. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is a justice fighter in the Firm League of Friendship. If you want to check out some photos or read more about Paul Bogush's lesson plan on teaching the Articles of Confederation with Blocks, head on over to our website, civics101podcast.org. Music in this episode by Jazar, Blue Dot Sessions, Kevin McLeod, Azura, and Scott Gratton. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio.